right. Okay, we are back. The Framework Project, myself and Jordan, episode something. Uh, I think we've lost count at this point, but I'm beyond excited for today's episode. This is an episode that Jordan and I have been looking forward to for two months now. An extremely special guest of ours. I'm going to let Jordan introduce who we have in the call with us. Um, And yeah, welcome back to the show, everybody. Yeah, so our our next guest is an assistant professor at the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law. Uh, He holds a whole bunch of degrees from the University of Toronto, including a master's in social work, juris doctor, and a doctor of juridical studies, uh, which I guess he recently defended. Um, and recently was awarded the Ian Kerr Award for Excellence in Teaching for the 2019-2020 academic year at the University of Ottawa. His research examines the intersection of health and international migration, and most importantly, he is my and Quinn's small group professor, teaches PubCon. We absolutely love him. Welcome to the show, Dr. Y.Y. Chen. Dr. Chen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, how is that? How is that intro? Not too, not too overboard. <laughs> well, it's always awkward to hear other people say things about you, even you know, good or bad. It's still awkward. But you know, thanks for for all that flattery. I, I appreciate that very much. Well, I mean, we we look up to you, and we um, we really admire you and your work. So we just wanted to to yeah, thank you for coming on. It's funny to hear also, too, just in the fact that, like, Jordan and I were talking earlier about prior to us even starting law school, you were a name that we had seen. Like, once we got accepted into U Ottawa, you just kind of, like, you know, you start following U Ottawa's social media, the Instagram, the Twitter. And I remember seeing your name on Twitter before even starting, and now here I am in your small group. So funny how things work out. Um we wanted to kind of take this interview with you to talk about things outside for once uh, of public and constitutional law. I mean, we can, but I think uh, Jordan and I wanted to start this conversation with you just to kind of go over things that are under discussed in academia um, and in law school in general. But before we do that, we would just love to hear from you just a bit about who you are outside um, of the resume, just, um, how you got to U Ottawa, your background in getting into law, um, and just kind of what brings you to the field of law in general. Sure. Um, So I'll try to make the story relatively short, but as you can probably tell, um, I'm a first-generation immigrant to this country. So I came to Canada uh, in my teenage years um, trying to uh, perfect my English while I adjust to the climate of this lovely country at the same time. Um, so I, I came here for high school, um, did a degree down in the States after uh, I finished high school and then came back to do a whole bunch of other degrees that Jordan just mentioned, um, one of which was Master in Social Work. And so, you know, at the time, the reason why I decided to do master in social work was because I was interested in, in social policies. And at University of Toronto, where I went to school, um, they had a specific stream within their social work program that looks at policy, community organization, and, and, you know, and so forth. So that was what I specialized in and thinking that that will link well with my undergrad study in sociology, but make it more practical and then also lead me to more of the policy world. And after after my social work degree, I started working um, for an organization in Toronto called the Committee for Accessible AIDS Treatment. So essentially, it's a coalition of a bunch of grassroots community-based organizations in the GTA that serves immigrants, refugees, and non-status people who are, you know, happen to be living with HIV. Um, and so I was working with them on a couple of research projects and looking at, um, funny how things turn out, looking at how, um, you know, people's access to mental health uh, could be improved, right, specifically for that population. And it was through that work um, that 
I uh, first of all, I'm, I'm passionate about the work and trying to advocate on behalf of some of the more marginalized groups in our society. But it's also in that work I found my the capacity to make any real change somewhat limited. And partly it's because I just don't know enough about the system, right? How the system is structured. And I thought, you know, why not just go to um, law school uh, and to know about the law, right? Which it's a, a huge part of um, our, our system. So, so that's why I did. I went to law school with a very specific view of trying to add to my advocacy toolbox. I wasn't thinking about becoming a lawyer. It was never really on my agenda to become a lawyer, but I just decided to go to law school for that specific reason, particularly looking at health law, um, because that was the area I was working in. Um, so, so, so that's what I did in, um, in law school. And after that, I was happy, uh, happy to have an opportunity, um, you know, to, to have complete my article, get licensed. And after that, my thought was, you know, wh- where can I go from that point onwards? Right? I am still passionate about advocacy. Um, I don't know if I will be able to do that um, practicing corporate law, right? You know, being a graduate from U of T's um, law school, I felt that a lot of my peers were simply looking at Bay Street, and that was not my interest. Um, so, so I decided to do a graduate degree. It just happened so that I, you know, I met a great mentor when I was doing my um, JD degree at U of T, and you know, I had the mentor, Professor Colleen Flood, who was now teaching at U Ottawa, was you know also suggesting that maybe I can do a graduate um, degree with her. So, so everything just kind of aligned at that point and I thought yeah let's go back to to um, U of T to do another degree in um, you know essentially a doctorate of law so so that's what I did Um, I completed my SJD recently but you know I I was fortunate enough to be hired at U Ottawa prior to my completion of my uh, doctorate Um, and um, that really is the um, the process of you know, where I came to where I am today. That's really great um, to hear about that experience. And also really interesting that you didn't necessarily come to law school um, when you did with the goal of, of, of practicing like a traditional lawyer in, in Bay Street, as you mentioned. Um, a, a big chunk of our audience, obviously, our lawyers, our future lawyers. Um, so they might understand um, your path a little bit better and your current occupation a little bit better. But Dr. Chun, just for those who are, are non-lawyers, maybe describe um, you know, your research and, and what your day-to-day work looks like now um, as a professor and as uh, a legal. Sure. So my research well, it touches on a bunch of things, but you know, at the core of it, um, what I try to examine is how our international migration system and health system intersect with each other, right? And what are some of the legal policy and ethical issues that bubble up at that intersection? So, so that's really what I try to examine in my research program. Um, and so my, my day-to-day work centered around that research. So for those of you who, who don't know, um, being any kind of academic, right? Uh, our jobs is divided really into three parts. One is research, one is teaching, um, and the, uh, the third is administrative work. And, and that is essentially... Um, what my day-to-day life consists of. In addition to furthering my research, um, I, I teach, right? Um, and it was beyond excited to have uh, you know, brilliant students like Jordan and uh, Quint in my small group. But you know, it's it, that's that's part of my passion, right? To the the student-facing part of my work is what get me really excited. Uh, beyond you know, beside my research, and then again, you know, 
uh, I also sit on a number of um, committees uh, within the faculty and also outside of the faculty. Um, and that, that's also just you know, regular administrative work that we have to do. And that looks a bit different from you know, what a practicing lawyer's work would look like. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't typically um, go to court. Right. Although some of my colleagues do uh, at U Ottawa, for example, we have a number of um, law professors that regularly appear before the Supreme Court of Canada as interveners or, or as even parties. Um, I just haven't had the opportunity to do so. It's not to say that if the um, opportunity arises, I, I won't um, take it on. It's just that I haven't had that opportunity yet. Um, so, so the practice is a bit different. Uh, a lot of my work these days are a lot more student facing and also, um, and also, you know, trying to, because of my work, um, research around migrant health issues, I also do quite a bit of interactions with the, the migrant community, be it, um, refugees, refugee claimants, or, or some other, uh, migrant groups. So, yeah, so those are the kind of people that I interact with uh, in my day-to-day life. Um, yeah, hopefully that gives you some insight into to what I do. Yeah, that was great. I think oftentimes, like, for me, it's just a 1L. I forget that a lot of our professors have all these diverse, like this diverse array of practice outside of class, uh, and you're no exception to that. And I think I wanted to just follow up to, to your, your first response, um, a question that popped into my head. So when you moved to Canada in high school, what was your initial draw to social work in particular? Um, just to me, I don't really know much about social work. I think that's one of those uh, occupations I just hear is like a very broad brush. Uh, I don't really know the details of that. What was your draw to that realm in mental health advocacy from the age of high school or undergrad? Yeah, so so you know, I think it's more undergrad that, you know, probably that's the starting point in high school. I, you know, like many people, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, but in undergrad, you know, I, I was like most, well, a lot of um, students with Asian background. Um, I was pre-med at the time. Um, and, and so my, um, my major was actually in biology. So, you know, I, I study biology, um, but in that process, because I mean, partly it's because I'm curious about how our, our you know, how human works, right? As, as a kind of a, uh, as a species, like how we work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I just find that, well, you know, we're not just biological, right? A lot of things that governs what we do are very much social. So, so at the time I, you know, decided to become a double major, like going from a kind of a, bio major to become a double major in biology and sociology. Um, And so my interest in social work um, for master's degree, really it was a continuation of the more sociological part of my undergrad, right? So, you know, most people think of social work as kind of the practical side of sociology. Right? So sociology tells us how society is organized, how it's function, how it influences how we think and do things. Whereas social work takes that body of knowledge, uh, knowledge and trying to, to devise um, a kind of strategy right? to, to um, help those individuals who are um, less fortunate because of the way that we structure our society. Um, and and so a lot of a lot of people do um, one-on-one kind of consultation work or counseling work. Um, that would be their practice of social work. Other people do group work. Again, my take on social work was more at the organizational community-based level, uh, looking at a particular group and then see how we can advance their cause through you know advocacy and, and policy change. So have you actually ever worked as a full-time social worker or was this more just from the academic perspective of social work? So I've not practiced as a social worker in the, in the capacity of um, being a counselor. 
No, I've never worked as a counselor per se for as a social worker, if that's what, you know, people sometimes often think of social worker in that capacity. No. Um, Again, my take on social worker as a profession was um, more on the advocacy side. So, so yeah, so I did practice as a social worker, but just not in the the one-on-one, even one-to-group kind of relationship. Right. Okay. Gotcha. So, Dr. Chen, um, I want to go back to something you were talking about earlier, um, kind of some of the work that you were doing um, with the different groups in Toronto um, and working with, um, you know, groups that focused on migrant health uh, and, 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 and access to health. And, you know, we are a podcast that talks about mental health. So I'm really curious. Um, I know, obviously, this was some time ago and things have changed since then. But what were some of the barriers, especially to mental health resources um, for immigrants and, and for migrants in Canada? Well, it's, you know, I think you're right. It's been a while since um, the the work I was doing back then. But I think a lot of it will still be quite relevant today. I don't think a whole lot has changed, to be quite honest. Um, you know, for for migrant populations, they're just typically when we think about access to health, there are things that just comes with the territory. One is whether or not they actually um, have entitlement to health, right? Healthcare. Um, so, so here in Canada, we we take, or at least a lot of people take healthcare uh, entitlement for granted because that's just part of what we get from our provinces, right? But for for a lot of migrants, particularly those with more precarious legal status here in Canada, they don't have that luxury. And so, so oftentimes, you know, to the extent that their health, including mental health, requires them to access the formal healthcare system itself, um, they may or may not be able to do so, depending on what, if they don't have the public healthcare system, then they, you know, they sometimes have to pay out of pocket and not everyone can do that. So that's one barrier. Um, another barrier stems from the fact that um, mental health, dealing with mental health issues often it entails a lot of exploration of people's day-to-day circumstances. And that you know, requires a lot of verbal communication. Um, but, but for a lot of uh, migrants, the language barrier is quite real. Um, so, so you may or may not be able to, um, to, to truly discuss the, the situations that you're facing with the service providers that you have, depending on your language ability. And it's not always easy to, to find someone who's able to provide you the service that you need, um, and, and be able to speak your, your language and understand the cultural context where you're coming from. And interpreters are not always the best either in you know in that sometimes they might lack the cultural piece and sometimes you know there is you know for people to talk about mental health you often need to create a kind of a safe space for them and and you know depending on where people are from if they're from a very small community and you find another member from the same community to help them interpret is often against the idea of creating that safe space just because of the privacy and confidentiality issues. So that's another thing. Um, And then just stigma, right? Like there for a lot of um, people, um, you know, this is across the board, but also for some racialized communities, um, they, they think of mental health as something that's very stigmatized Mm -hmm. and they think of mental health solely through the lens of, you know, mental illness, right? right? And so, so to, to ask them to think about their mental health is sometimes is, you know, almost offensive, right? In a way that they'll tell you, no, crazy. So, so why are you suggesting that I need mental health support? Right. Um, And so, so that's something that, that require further public awareness raising Mm -hmm. and, and public education. What um, I think this brings up a really interesting topic that I really don't know much about. You know, I, I say the word mental health advocacy, the work that Jordan and I do, or at least the conversations that Jordan and I facilitate, 
but I feel as though oftentimes it can be very uh, narrow in the sense of these are perspectives that I don't know much about. So I wanted just to ask you on your kind of your own journey from coming into Canada as an immigrant to ending up to the caliber that you're at now, how have you noticed, or if you have, like growing up um, in a first generation family, did you have any issues with mental health in the sense of those cultural barriers or those cultural stigma stigmas that kind of prevent those conversations from happening? Or have you had any experiences just within your own culture about kind of facilitating those conversations about mental health personally? Personally, I would say that, you know, I, that's the funny thing, you know, now I'm just reflecting upon it. I've not really had a very uh, in-depth discussion about mental health within my family. Like I've not talked to my family about this. I've not, you know, it's just not a topic that usually arises when we talk about health. It's mostly about physical health, right? And, and you know, it's, it's also not surprising because we know and studies show this, that for, for some, some people and, and, you know, for some cultures um, that, you know, sometimes mental health was, can be expressed in a somatic sense, right? So, so people might have um, mental health um, needs but then when they the, the way that they verbalize it it's not that you know i'm feeling depressed or anxious right for them they will put it in kind of physical sense you know they, it becomes there's they feel aches and pains here and there but really at the end of the day the source of those aches and pains are not physical but really more mental and and we see that happening you know with, with um some some specific cultures as studies show and, really? and you know i suspect maybe there's a level of that within my family right like observing my parents and, and knowing how hard they work and i i know there's mental health issues within our family uh, but we just we hardly talk about it and then you know you know for for my mother who has a series of um health struggles um, you know, sometimes I wonder, right, how much of that is mental and how much is that, how much of that is truly uh, physical. Would you say in the in greater Chinese culture, I know there's many, 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 it's a very diverse culture, but just in the general Chinese culture from your experience, would you say that mental health is seen as something that's like, I'm just trying to think of an adjective that you may have heard, like weak or um, not real. I know I've heard other immigrant friends of mine say that mental health just doesn't exist in their culture. Like what type of adjectives are used to describe mental health when it is brought up in, in that culture? Well, I think there's still very much, as I mentioned, a stigma associated with it. And, and typically when people think about mental health, again, they think about it as mental illness, right? It's a very medicalized model. And so, so you must, you know, be, you know, quote unquote crazy. Um, and that's, that's what people said, right. Um, you know, to, to ever need to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist and so forth. So for a long time, there's quite a bit of, um, resistance to, to even the idea of counseling. Um, and, you know, and, and for a long time, I, I can understand what, what might be some of the reasons for this, right. Beyond just the, the idea of what, you know, just what we think is, is quote unquote normal, right? I think there's also this idea that, you know, to the extent that a group of people are still struggling for kind of their day-to-day material, um, you know, accuracy, like if, if they, they're lacking housing, if they're lacking, you know, uh, you know, the ability to put food food on the table and so forth. Well, then thinking about mental health becomes more of a luxury, right? And so, so you know, given that context, I can see why there's a bit of resistance to talk about mental health. Now, I'm from Taiwan, and and you know, again, I'm I'm looking at this from more of an outsider's perspective because I don't live there anymore. But my understanding is that you know, at least in Taiwan. Um, in the past, you know, I will say a decade or two, that there has been a greater understanding of the importance of mental health uh, and that 
um, there's a destigmatization of um, you know even simple things such as going to see a counselor, right? So so I'm glad to see that happening. Um, whether that is the same situation in you know let's say China or other parts of the greater Chinese world, I, I'm not sure. That's um that's an awesome answer to that question, and you know I I think one thing that you just said that that hit home to me a lot was that being able to talk about mental health is a luxury because typically there's so many other things going on. And it makes me think of, um, I don't know, Quinn, if you ever, you probably did take like a psychology class. There's like this one psychological theory that like you have to satisfy every one of these basic needs before you can reach the apex and like really take care of like the most surface level stuff. So when Dr. Chen, when you were just speaking about that, how that's a luxury, it's almost like, you know, you have to be able to satisfy, you know, you have to be able to eat first. You have to be able to like take care of your body. And if like, you've got a broken leg, well, you can't think about like what's going on in your own head because you got to take care of the leg first. Right. So it's almost, yeah. Like the, the whole like luxury thing, I think Quinn and I are so privileged, obviously to get to talk about this. Um, and, and I think we all are just to, you know, be able to destigmatize and focus on that instead of working, focusing on some of those other issues that might be plaguing, um, you know, people from different cultures, different countries and different areas of the world. Um, and I know this is such a hard issue and we could probably talk about it all day. But Dr. Chen, if you, you know, talking about destigmatizing mental health in some of these cultures, what are some of the steps that you that you could see that we could take as a society to help that help facilitate that process? Well, I think, you know, the things that you guys are doing, right, just having a conversation around the issue um, is an important step, right? And so, so that's why, you know, I'm, I'm heartened to see that you have this framework project um, going on and really talking about um, really centering um, the, the focus on, on the issue of mental health. And by the way, you know, going back to what you're saying, right, like in terms of thinking about mental health as a luxury. Um, now, you know, I think it doesn't have to be that way, right? I, I think there's another way to think about mental health and knowing that there's all these um, stressors that, that come from outside of us, right? Whether it's the need to, to put food on the table, whether it's the need to take care of your family um, and, and, and you know, find a roof over your head and so forth, right? I think instead of thinking it in a very, in, in a priority kind of way that you have to take care of one before you do the other i think we can look at it in more kind of holistic sense right thinking of mental health as part and parcel of our overall health and a lot of those stressors that we talk uh, that, that we talked about um you know if you address that it also um, addresses your mental health right and in fact you know going back to to the research work that i was doing um after my social work with, with a group of people um, in Toronto, you know, when we ask them what they think mental health means, right? What is mental health for them? For a lot of racialized folks um, who perhaps are, are hesitant to talk about mental health, you know, because they, they, they equate that with mental illness, but they will tell you that they're so stressed out because of the things that we talk about, about, you know, financial uh, needs and, and so forth. Right? And they'll, they'll, they'll describe those as sources of stress, even though they don't really see that as being connected to their mental health. Um, and so, so I think that, you know, again, part of their conversation about mental health, first of all, is to think about it in a more holistic sense as part and parcel of how we take care of ourselves generally. And you just don't divide, right? As a person, you don't divide yourself physically, you know, from, from, from your mental part. Um, but also... You know, it's also important to think about beyond taking care of yourself, right? Beyond having this conversation of the destigmatizing um, and and being allowing someone to do those kind of self care that they need. What are some of the environmental and systemic issues that also needs to be changed to allow a person to be healthy, be it right. physically or mentally? Right. So I think all that needs to happen if we truly want to advance this agenda of, you know, uh, uh, ensuring everyone has good mental health. 
I think it's uh, interesting that you talk about this idea of like the definition of mental health and realizing that like everybody's definition of that for themselves is so different. It's in, in Jordan. I've talked about this. It's no same. It's like synonymous with physical health. Everybody's definition of like being healthy physically completely changes from person. Yeah. to person, And like not trying to approach mental health, destigmatization or just mental health advocacy from a one size fits all. But like you said, like fostering those spaces to allow people to find what works for them, um, I think is kind of the the best solution moving forward. Uh, Jordan, I don't know much. We're only 23, but we're working on it. Um, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Chen, uh, as we transition to just kind of talking about mental health in an area that doesn't really seem to have a lot of it, uh, that's law schools, historically speaking. Uh, I know we had talked about this yesterday before the show about us kind of wanting to hear more of a practitioner's perspective or a, a professor's perspective onto what mental health is like for somebody in the at faculty of law itself. You know, we often hear perspectives a lot and valid of students who are in law school, historically a very draining and daunting and, and rigid program that students often find themselves in the throes of mental health with. And it's always kind of like put back onto you know, the administration doesn't understand students. The administration is causing um, these dynamics that are leading to poor mental health. That's kind of the dialogue we've heard. They're the enemy, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so from your perspective, Dr. Chen, as somebody who's part of the faculty, we, you know, we don't see you uh, as an enemy. We don't see you as a, in fact, I, I'm sure we're not the first people to tell you this. You're probably one of the most uh, compassionate, empathetic people I've met in academia since undergrad. Easily. I'm trying to, trying to gather your perspectives as to uh, what mental health looks like from a faculty member's perspective. And do you see that a disconnect between students and faculty in that, in that topic? Yes and no, to be quite honest. I, I think that there is definitely some validity to... Um, the complaint that the faculty or just the university or academia in general can do better to to foster students' mental health, right? Or at least create a more humane way of education that that is not detrimental or as detrimental to people's mental health. Now, I think that is a legitimate um, complaining or concern. So I, I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, there's the students are completely naive. Right? I think the, you know, the students are, are, you know, have all the, all the right to, to, to make that complaint. Now the, the issue is how do we change that? And that's where me as kind of a professor, right, which is simply a cockwheel in the whole system that is way beyond me find it frustrating um, and I'm not frustrated with the students I'm frustrated with the capacity that I have right within the the bigger system to really to realize the kind of changes that's necessary to to foster students um, mental health right so so let's just you know give a very concrete example and this is just you know, something that's hypothetical. But let's say that, you know, part of the reason why students feel stressed out, right, being, you know, you've, you've gone through the, you're, you're almost you know, complete your first year of law school. One, one thing that I've constantly heard from students um, going through that experiences that you're going through now is, well, you know, it seems the way that we create our first year curriculum is very front and loaded, Right, you have like seven courses in your first semester, um, and then that seems to be a source of stress for for a lot of people. And and there are people, you know, there are students who've told me that why can we kind of spread the courses yeah. a little bit, and, and somehow, you know, perhaps that will that will lessen the load. Or I will I will hear students who also say that you know the way that you know law is taught um, typically is very um, kind of top-down, right? We kind of just tell you this is what the law says, right? We, we don't really encourage a lot of, you know, um, or as much, you know, when compared to other um, 
other fields of studies. In law, like there's not a whole lot of debate from the ground up um, to challenge the law, especially not in your first year core curriculum cases. I mean, courses like in your seminar, yes, you'll debate and all that. But in the core courses, a lot of times the material is just presented to you as, well, this is what the law is, right? This is what constitutional law is. This is what the criminal law says. And so, so some people find that bit, bit also frustrating. And so, I mean, all that, for example, requires a, a rethink about how we, we set up the curriculum, or how you know we we change the way that we teach certain materials, but me as one professor is very like it, it's it's difficult for me to take that on, right? And even if I want to take that on and in a, a rally you know within our faculty um, and and try to um, you know get a group of people going and and trying to really push forward for this, well, part of it also is well, it's not it's not. I'm not being rewarded for this, right? In terms of my job description, like my, you know, that it might help the students at the end of the day, but in terms of, you know, when I describe to you what the part of my responsibility on paper consists of, right? Um, Research, education and teaching and, and administrative work, really at the end of the day, why I'm being evaluated for the most part is my research work. Right? And everything else that I take on is, you know, is essentially unrecognized work. It's not going to make me, um, you know, better recognized as a scholar, for example, right? And and that's just unfortunate. And so then, how do I tackle that piece, right? And and right. so so then it just again, I, I just I find myself often in a in. And that, that contributes to my own frustration with my own mental health. It's, you know, I know certain things need to be done differently. And there's only very diff- little things that I personally can do. Then how much energy do I t- you know, spend, um, unrecognized energy, by the way, to, yeah. to try to make those changes um, you know, to, in service of the student? And how much do I just say, well, this is beyond me? Right. And, and, and a lot of that time, that that struggle um, gets me I, at the end of the day, I just it's exhausting. Right. Like I, I appreciate the students feedback and I want to do better and I want to take the feedback seriously. But then where do I go from there? Mm-hmm. Right? So so that's kind of my source of frustration most of the time, to be honest. You feel like there's some almost like you are so tuned in almost from what I'm hearing to, again, like you foster these lines of communication with your students and you have students express these things to you, but there's like almost like a limitation as to what you can end up doing about it. And I feel as though I wanted to follow up. Like, why do you think just in terms from a pet, I can never say this word, the pedagogy, how do you approach approach teaching law? why it's so it almost seems so institutional in the sense of every single person has like there's books about this i read a book this summer as one as some harvard students one l experienced and it was written in the 50s or 60s and it's like this hasn't changed at least the approach to law the black letter law and like the normalization of like seven courses so you think that that approach is just like oh we've been through it we as in like whoever's designing um the, the law school administration everybody's been through it. This is like kind of like the trial you need to go through right of passage. So we're just going to keep it that way. Or do you think there's actually value in having those six, seven, eight courses a semester? You know, I, I think that there, okay. So, so let me just frame that a little bit differently. So I think that there may be some group of professors, they might say that it's not that, you know, it's it's not that they will say this is the rite of passage. This is the only way we can do it. So, you know, and we've done it. You must do it too. I think the mentality may be closer to the following, which is, you know, this is how we've gone through it. We know it can be changed, but to the extent that we cannot change it, you know, and we've gone through it, we know it's doable. Then, you know, you can do it, no problem, right? It's, so it's not purposely trying to impose that on new students thinking that this is something that must happen. It's simply that, you know, sometimes, again, it, it's it's easier to stay with the status quo, right? It right. takes a lot of effort to change 
um, the way that you teach or to change the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And again, to the extent that those work were not rewarded as part of a professor's job, for example, well then, you know, what's the incentive, right? And if I can simply take someone else's uh, material from, you know, the way that they've taught in previous years, and I just kind of somehow modify it a little bit for, to suit my need, and then to use that to teach, so essentially just perpetuating the status quo, it's the most time efficient way of doing it. And we know that, again, you know, it's, we have gone through the system that way. We know that it actually, you know, it's doable. It's, you know, it might not be the most pleasant experience, but it's doable. So then let's just keep doing it, right? And I think that's that's more perhaps closer to the situation, um, you know, it just I will say inertia, right? I think we, we got a bit of lag on there. No, I was just going to say, I think there is something to be said about like, I mean, Jordan, and I talked about this in our first episode, some like, very twisted sense of satisfaction of like looking at what we conquered and through like at least first semester of one L and being like, Oh, we really can do this. You know, like you were saying, and I think it was just like trying to challenge that seems like you were mentioning just a very daunting task because it's just been the way for, for decades. So, but I, I do understand what you're saying. I think that's still such like a, a an illogical way of looking at things though too, Quinn, just because it's the way things have been forever doesn't mean that we can't improve on them. And I think just, some of the things that Dr. Chen that you're saying, it just makes me feel like the system's broken. You know, the fact that, um, you know, professors are one of their, you know, you said there's three jobs and one of them is student facing. And that's like the one that impacts, you know, all of these people's lives. And, you know, I, I always say that there's, there's people that are like professors and then there's teachers, right? And there's a big difference where one is very good at conveying the material and and does that part of the job willingly, even though, like you were saying, most of the recognition comes from the research. So I don't know. I don't know if there's I don't know how to fix it. Right. Like this, you just have to have the conversation. And that's why I'm happy we got to, we get to have you on and, and to do this. Um, one thing that I wanted to talk about as well, though, um, you know, we talk about the student's mental health all the time. And I think that's, that's obviously super important to me and to Quinn and to everybody. And it's just important in general. But one thing that never gets talked about is how, you know, professors and administration who are all human as well deal with this. What kind of resources are available and what kind of conversations are had amongst faculty members about, about their mental health, if any? Well, you know, I can only give you my perspective and I, I you know, I, I won't uh, pretend that I can speak on behalf of my colleagues. Um, now, I'm, I'm somewhat reluctant, to be honest, to, to talk about mental health. Um, if, you know, today, if I'm experiencing some kind of mental health issues, I, I'd be reluctant to speak with my, uh, my colleagues about it. Right. And, and, and fortunately, there is some support from, you know, the the university that's that is essentially same kind of counseling that's provided to students. There is a, a, a similar or analogous kind of um, counseling support provided to staff and fa- faculty who are experiencing mental health needs. And uh, I've never use that resources um, doesn't mean that I, I, I won't at some point in my life. Um, you know, so at some point I've thought about doing it. Um, but I just, you know, so, so there's some kind of support in that sense. Um, but yeah, so in terms of, you know, just having a very frank conversation within our faculty, I personally have not been a part of that, that conversation. And, and part of it, it's just, you know, it's, this is again. This is my own view. Is to the extent that some of those stresses or, or source of you know of anxiety or frustration comes from kind of outside the faculty, well, then what do we do with it, right? It, it's again, you, you know, when when things becomes more system a system, yeah, systemic uh, or institutionalized, well, it, it requires further effort. Um, on our part to 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 uh, to make the necessary change so that whatever support that we receive is not just band-aid right we can actually mm-hmm. get to the root of it um, but you know again it, it's just when when you know everyone's busy but uh, you know 
professors are, are, are as well, and to to kind of take up uh, additional work to try to make the you know to advocate for systemic change so that we as professors are, are um, healthy both physically and mentally. You know, I think it's it's a it's a tall order, right? It's, you know, it's yeah. a thankless job, and there are people who do it. Uh, some of my colleagues who are being more involved in in the the union side of things, they do great work in trying to push for um, better support from the university, the central administration. I'm, you know, unfortunately have not been part of that. And again, it just speaks to my capacity and also, you know, my, my relatively precarious, I use the word <laughs> in a very, in a very um, kind of uh, cautious sense, but relatively precarious um, position within the the faculty right in, in the sense that i'm pre-tenure and and that you know at the end right. of the day i have to keep my job and so so how much of you know how much can i rock the boat right and that that's also something i need that i need to constantly think about so so yeah just you know i to answer your question that there you know there's some support is there enough support? Personally, I would say no, but, you know, what can we do, right? That's kind of right. where I'm left with. Yeah, and I think I think it's the best thing you can really do is have these conversations, right? And yeah. uh, not to, like, give advice to you, Dr. Chen, because you've got infinitely more experience than Quinn and I do. But, you know, I, from, my, from my understanding, I think the best thing you can do is just be supportive and be a, be a good colleague and a good friend as well. Uh, and a good person more than anything, right? And I think, you know, if I could give advice to a professor, not just you, but to the faculty, it's just, you know, practice what you preach, right? I think a lot of people are telling us, you know, be there for each other, be there for your fellow students. But I think the the one thing and why I wanted to ask you that is because we never talk about it from the other perspective. And I think I'm sensitive to it as well. I don't know how many people know this. A lot of people that went to high school with me that listen to this know that we lost um, – two teachers in the time I was there to suicide. And it's like, no one ever talks about how, how much stress, you know, they're under. It just seems like the conversation is always geared towards students and, and, you know, the, the lower end of, you know, the, the, I guess the, the hierarchy, is that the right word? But um, yeah, anyways, I really happy that you got to share that with us. And hopefully when we talk to more, professors in the future um if any professors want to come on and talk we can we can maybe unpack that issue a little bit more yeah oh for sure um can i just say one thing though of course yeah thing that that you just said and i appreciate that and you know i definitely um you know again i i do have very supportive colleagues of uh, course so so you know i'm (laughs) i count myself quite fortunate in that part um (laughs) the only thing i would say is sometimes it would also would have would also appreciate um, more, you know, as much as as we we try to be there for the students and trying to be very understanding of the students' circumstances, you know, I think that if it can be reciprocated sometimes, you know, for sure, immensely helpful, right? And I, I think that unfortunately some colleagues of mine and you know to some extent i've experienced some of this but not to the same extent as some of my other colleagues especially female colleagues that you know they have experienced quite a bit of lack of kindness to put it quite frankly from some students right like they're just you know for some reason students are just not as tolerant um you know or understanding of their circumstances and sometimes if you read the student's evaluation, you know, as much as we, we appreciate constructive feedback, right, there's also things said in there that is very detrimental to anyone's mental health. Yeah. That must um, be tough. I've never thought about the fact that you guys, because I'm thinking about our 1L courses, like there's like 80 to 100 kids. Some of them aren't received well. So I, I'm, and I forget the fact that there's a human behind those sometimes. Yeah, and and sometimes you know you, I mean, I will talk to some of my colleagues, and you know the the things that they receive from students or the things that are said to them from uh, by their students, it's you know it make my jaw drop, right? Oh my and 
And you know, to to some extent, I've experienced some of that. But again, you know, I I've, you know I count myself fortunate insofar as you know I I'm, I don't think that I'm at the brunt of of that. And 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 so I just it's perhaps more of a PSA from my unsolicited PSA from you know the faculty, which is you know sometimes you know if we can be courteous to one another, right? And as much as you know, students would like more understanding from the faculty members or their professors, you know, will, will plead the same kind of courtesy and just civility um, from the student body as well. I think everyone is doing our very best. I, I generally don't think that there is anyone there, you know, at least the, my, the colleagues that I know of, we're not out there to get anyone, right? Like we're not trying to purposely make your life difficult. Of course. So, think, so again, it's just something that, that I thought, you know, should be said. I think, uh, what I would always say, or what I'm going to start saying is like, just cause you're paying a certain amount of money doesn't mean you have to be an asshole. Um, that's kind of just, uh, seriously, like, I mean, that's the thing is you hear people being like, well, I'm paying $23,000 to be here. And like the fact that my prof can't respond to me in 24 hours, it's like, I don't think that comes at the price tag, but that's just me. Um, yeah. and also Quinn, whoever is giving Dr. Chen negative feedback, uh, we need to have a chat. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, not going to be a nice chat yeah well we can get them on the show put them on the hot seat we'll have interrogation Dr. yeah background yeah exactly like the um dr chen we we really value time we know we've just shot over so i think from the bottom of both my heart and jordan's heart we just want to say thank you for yeah. taking the time to talk about what we've talked about i think um these are uncomfortable conversations, very personal, especially the stuff that relate to you and your lived experiences. So um, I, I really hope that this is going to be a well-received episode. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come chat with us about this. And uh, like Jordan, I always say, adjust the framework about how people uh, approach these topics. So thank you. No, thank you. I, I really appreciate that you give me at least some time to to reflect upon some of the things that I haven't really taken the time to to do. So, so thank you for for having me and give me um, your platform. I appreciate this. Well, we're gonna go work on your factor now. So that's uh, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> All right. All right.